Okay, we're going to get started. I'd like to echo my thanks to the organizers and especially to uh, a friend of all of ours, Mr. Graham, for giving us this opportunity to participate <coughs> in this event um, and share the uh, complimentary reaction to the earlier panels. Um, I, I feel very fortunate that Mr. Graham gave me the opportunity to uh, try and identify some of the people to discuss the topic we're gonna, going to cover today, which is really more of a, a uh, I guess, a conduct of hostilities or in bellow focus, so to complement the last panel, and specifically the challenges of translating what we might call traditional rules to the, the type of conflicts that uh, the men and women in uniform in this, this room uh, are dealing with on a daily basis, which are complicated to say the least. I feel especially fortunate to be up here with three great colleagues of distinguished background. You can read their bios. I think most of you know them. But more importantly, three people that I can call very, very dear friends. Rich uh, Gross this morning was talking about, uh, we were talking about how his son just got engaged. And I remembered when I found out his son was forthcoming right before the side straddle hop at a PT formation at Fort Campbell probably in 1993. And, Ken Watkin and I go back where we first met uh, when he came to a course at the JAG School in 1996. Mike Meyer and I have been friends since we worked together when he was at Chairman's Legal, and I was in the job that he's in now uh, for the Army as both members of the Law of War Working Group. So these are not just people who I respect because of their expertise and experience. They're people that I genuinely uh, call good friends, and I appreciate all of your being willing to come and help out uh, with our topic. So we're gonna try and follow a format where I propose to each of uh, the panelists a couple of questions, asked each of them to take a lead on some of them. But to set the stage, uh, one, of the, one of the issues I think we all have complete consensus on is that the conflicts that we are dealing with now, the conflicts that are addressed in the uh, topic of the symposium are non-international armed conflicts. That may seem somewhat uh, obvious or axiomatic, but many of us remember when the post 9-11 era began and that was not as easy a, an assertion to make because we had all been uh, in kind of this assumption that armed conflicts had to either be international or internal under the, under the rubric of non-international armed conflicts. And the, the phrase transnational armed conflict, which is commonly used I think today in the discourse and in, even in uh, judicial opinions, government opinions, was something relatively new. And it, I think, I think, I'm not sure that uh, the phrase was coined in a footnote to an article I did on snipers in a minaret in, in Iraq, where I was simply trying to identify a term that everybody could agree to that would indicate that you were in fact in a non-international armed conflict outside your own national territory, which was a complicated proposition to assert. Uh, today, that's an accepted reality, and, I, and I, I posed the question to the panelists last night. I found out that a couple of them were at dinner, so they abated their answer. But is there any plausible theory to argue that the conflict against ISIS is anything other than a non-international armed conflict? And not only did I get a rapid negative response from the panelists, but even Mr. Graham, who was CC'd on the email, said it's basically straightforward. We're dealing with a non-international armed conflict. So that's our kind of legal framework that we're operating under. And then what becomes challenging, I think, 
is how do we address some of the issues that would be simplified in an interstate armed conflict when we're dealing with a non-international armed conflict? And I'm going to start with uh, Brigadier General Watkin and, and focus specifically on the people part. We've heard some discussion this morning about uh, targeting and the parties involved in conflict, but how do we characterize the, the enemy we're dealing with? In my view, we, we deal with two broad schools of thought. Maybe in the end the outcome is the same, but there's a school of thought that there is in fact what we might call a third category of participants in the battle space, the unprivileged belligerent, a member of an organized armed group that doesn't qualify for POW status but is not a civilian versus the camp that says you're either a combatant or a civilian. Now, if you're a civilian, you can lose your protection as a result of direct participation in hostilities. I've always viewed the, the, the former theory as more maybe operationally and tactically sound, but I'd like you to, to start us off with a discussion of that question. Okay. Well, actually, I'd like to start just by echoing the comments and saying what a pleasure it is to be here. The first Law of Armed Conflict course I ever took was in 1983, and you folks had Law of Armed, Law of Armed Conflict courses here, and we didn't. And so we used to send our officers down here. And, of course, I got to come back again in 96 or 97 for the two-week National Security Law program that ran in the summer at uh, University of Virginia, and it was, it was just a wonderful program. Um, another sort of thing to start with is David Graham sent out a, a reference to a Washington Post article talking about uh, possible changes to rules of engagement. And it says, uh, Trump also ordered recommendations to change any existing military rules of engagement that are more stringent than what is required by international law. There's both a positive and a concerning element to that. The positive element is the reference to it's going to be governed by international law under the new administration. And I only say that because to put this in context, if we were you know, sitting in my office 16 years ago, there were some very serious discussions about what the U.S. was doing and what its commitment was to international law. And that can make it you know, what, what international law applied or didn't, where the sources of law were going to apply to our new actors, that can make it very challenging to be an ally. And so you know, the, what a state is going to do is they're going to say, well, we'll keep true to what we believe it is. And quite frankly, the discussion we had in my office was it's a great democracy and it has a great Supreme Court and they will sort it out. And uh, if you go to the Hamden decision, ultimately that's what happened. So uh, when I go talk to my UK uh, colleagues, I tell them we share the same monarch, but we're not, we don't have the same legal system and the, uh, necessarily, and we're certainly not bound by the European Court of Human Rights. So states will look at these issues differently from their own experience. Um, what I've put up here is uh, your definition from the U.S. Military Commissions Act. And I guess the question I pose for you is, if you were an outside observer, what would you believe the U.S. view is to who is a valid target? Well, is this a definition of who a valid target is? And what does material support mean after the Holder decision in terms of the breadth of this? Of course, the U.S. Commissions Act is focused on detainees and trial, right? But the U.S. Commissions Act is also the only place I've been able to find that has a legislative basis for war sustaining, which is you know, targeting the uh, banks, and the, or not the banks, the money depots, and the oil producing facilities in Iraq. So for an outside observer, you could, you could struggle a little bit to find out what the legal basis is of a state in terms of how broadly they're targeting. So on top of the whole issue of the international concerns about whether there is a right to strike outside hot battlefields or 
active battlefields. There's also the question of the concern of what the breadth is of, uh, of who is a valid target. The broader you make a unprivileged belligerent as a target, the less chance you're going to have civilian casualties. The narrower that is, then you may have a broader number of civilian casualties. And uh, Ryan uh, Goodman, Gabor Rona, and Steve Pomper have been having an en engagement in the last few days on just security where this is one of the issues that's been raised in terms of a skepticism by some as to how many civilian casualties there are and how you define them. You can go to the military, your uh, new military, uh, your manual, um, uh, Law of Armed Conflict manual, and it has a lot of great things in there in terms of general discussions. It's largely focused by the DPH study and a reaction to the, to the ICRC DPH study, which many of us view as far too narrow. So it gives a broader view of who might fall within the definition, including things like same function that is performed in a regular armed forces, combat support, or combat service support function. Well, what does that mean for an armed group? How do you equate that in terms of a non-state actor? There is a lot of unknowns. What does material support mean here? And when you put it in practical terms, it wasn't so long ago, 2009, where there was a very serious discussion within NATO about targeting Taliban drug dealers in Afghanistan. And the question is whether Taliban drug dealers were unprivileged enemy belligerents. I think they would have been, arguably, under this definition. But there was considerable pushback in terms of what the international community felt was the definition of an unprivileged belligerent, or whatever you want to call it. But you, you would concede that you cannot ipso facto extrapolate from the fact that they're using this as a detention standard that it is the definitive definition of who the enemy fighter is. Right. And so from my perspective, that's what it is. And I don't believe the targeting that's going on is that broadly framed. The question is, in the debate that, that is going on publicly over what is a lawful target and who are civilians that are being killed, where is the specificity being provided that would show that that's narrowed? Or where is there a public statement, even in the various U.S. documents, to say this is solely for the basis of trial under the U.S. Commissions Act and not a definition for targeting purposes? The targeting might be much narrower. Because this raises questions of who falls within the envelope. So one of the concerns I used to have in our armed forces when we were talking about targeting is people would talk about the Taliban. Well, my question is, no, it's the armed group that we're targeting. So is everyone in the Taliban a member of their armed group? Is everyone in al-Shabaab a member of the armed group? And if you're the Islamic State and you're trying to pretend you're a state or operate like a state, you're inviting engineers, you're inviting financiers in, you're trying to run a government, is everyone that works for the Islamic State a valid target? Because they're so, a member of the so, organized so armed group. So my question, I think, and the question that, that the, the hardest question, we know that, that status-based targeting is a, is a presumptive-based rule. You wear a uniform, you have a status, you're presumptively a threat, you don't, you're a civilian, you're presumptively inoffensive. Neither presumption is conclusive. They're both rebuttable. But what it does affect is the burden. So if I'm a soldier and you're in uniform, you bear the burden of rebutting the presumption. I can act on the presumption. If 
if you're if the enemy you're fighting basically dilutes the ability to engage in that type of presumptive presumptive attack decision making have they have they won an unjustifiable windfall by essentially making every targeting judgment conduct based which constantly puts the burden on the the law abiding force to make the, the, the fact-based judgment, because if you say, well, how do you know which members of this group are part of the belligerent group, it sounds like you have to treat it as if they're all not, and then you have the burden of justifying every attack judgment. Yeah. And, and I, I do not think they're all, they're all conduct-based. I think the question of the organized armed group is a valid concern. You can go to additional protocol, too, and you find the wording right there, and I'm a proponent of that. I've uh, certainly the combat function test was was I was an early uh, proponent of that term, which got picked up by the Israeli uh, Supreme Court, which worked its way into the DPH study that was narrowed with continuous combat function. I guess the concern I have is that presumes that states always fight in uniform or states always employ uh, organizations which fall within the armed forces. And we know clearly that isn't the case. It isn't the case historically going back, you know, World War II and before, and it isn't the case now. And so there, you know, sometimes even if you're fighting another state, uh, part of the conduct, you're gonna have to use a conduct-based criteria to understand whether they fall within the armed status. group that, you know, meet the status. So you can argue putting on a uniform is a form of conduct, right? right? So uh, Mike, can raise the issue of um, targeting resources, war-sustaining resources. It was brought up a couple of times today, attacking money and the whole discussion of whether money, when you're dealing with a non-state group, should be treated differently than you're dealing with a group that is sub subject to IEPA or OFAC or something like that. And I'd, I've asked you to give some thought to the, the, the U.S. approach to dealing with resources as a potential object of attack. Uh, thanks, Jeff. And, and first, like, join others and thank the organizers for in inviting us down today. Uh, as the one panel member that's still part of the U.S. government, like others, I have to sort of give my um, um, disclaimer that, again, the views are mine, mine alone. Uh, I think Carl Chain sort of explained this uh, uh, pretty well, that anything I say that's, that's correct, uh, the Department of Defense will be happy to jump on those, and anything that I say that, that the Department of Defense disagrees with, um, uh, like the guys in Mission Impossible, I have been disavowed and I'm out there on my own. So, uh, uh, so that's my disclaimer. Um, Colonel Pat Houston uh, talked a little bit about, the, I think, the war-sustaining targeting that, that they're doing. Um, certainly, um, uh, I agreed with the comment that, that he had this morning is that I don't think the United States believes categorically that we can target, you know, any um, cash revenue generating object just simply because of their nature. So I, I think you have to look back to whether, um, you know, just simply the principle of distinction. Is it a civilian object or is it a, a military objective? Uh, and then you just look at the definition in this sort of the two parts. Um, you know, does it by its nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to military action? Uh, so, and so that's the first part. Um, and I think in the case of ISIS and the petroleum um, aspect and, and then the bulk cash, uh, I, I think that's where the distinction comes in because it is making an effective contribution to the military action. Uh, ISIS doesn't have the ability to print its own money. Uh, it's not like the U.S. government where we do it. So it is a cash-based business, as Colonel Houston pointed out. Um, and that money goes directly to paying um, 
its fighters. It goes directly to uh, um, buying weapons. Um, so, I mean, there is a uh, effective contribution to that military action. And same thing with the oil. You know, they're selling the oil um, specifically to raise funds for um, buying ammo, weapons, and other supplies for the fight. And then you get to the second part, whether the destruction offers a definite military advantage. And again, uh, it goes to you can't have sort of speculative or um, indirect sort of um, gains or in indeterminate gains. You'd have to show that how it has the definite military advantage of taking this. And because it does rely on the petroleum and the cash, um, I think the view has been that it's not speculative or indeterminate. Um, and when they've you can see that through the results of the targeting. Uh, you know, once the cash bulk sites were destroyed, um, they've had to reduce salaries to their fighters. Um, once you've taken out um, um, the petroleum exports, I mean, people refer to ISIS as the richest terrorist organization in the world. Uh, they were generating anywhere up to a billion dollars a year uh, with these things. And with the destruction, that has been cut in half or more. And so you can see that it's directly impacted how ISIS has been able to fight. And I think that's how you have to, to look at that. And it becomes, uh, I think, the farther you get into the speculative nature of the targets you're going to attack, um, the less likely it's going to meet the military objective standard. So I guess the question that, that that raises in my mind, and I know that Ken has written about this issue on um, just security and, and been somewhat critical of treating uh, money as a as a target is whether the the non-state nature of the enemy and this is for all of you whether the non-state nature of the enemy is a relevant consideration when assessing what might otherwise be an impermissible means or method of warfare in an international armed conflict for example uh, I was at one meeting where Yoram Dinstein uh, in the way he likes to, to, to point things out, emphasizes that international law recognizes there's a way to deprive an enemy of resources, blockade, right? But then the question becomes, when you're dealing with an enemy, as um, the colonel said this morning, that's not amenable to things like asset forfeiture, freezing of assets, financial controls, blockade, so forth, does that justifiably expand the scope of what then becomes a permissible military objective because of the effect that you need to produce on the enemy? Anybody? Well, I mean, one of the things it does is, is from a practical standpoint, it makes it harder to distinguish. And, and so, for example, if we had someone moving large amounts of cash, you know, they might be a U.S. Treasury employee, you know, a little bit of a bizarre hypothetical, and they'd be in a civilian truck, and they're clearly not a combatant because we distinguish. We might have, on the other hand, a finance officer in a military uniform with a military vehicle moving military cash, and, and so there, it's very easy to distinguish there, and, and we do that. We have, we have military officers and NCOs in combat zones moving large amounts of cash around, they're combatants. They're lawful targets, and and they know that. Just and so we obviously protect them. And so the enemy, on the other hand, doesn't have that distinction. They don't have a Department of Treasury, you know, is e easily distinguishable. And so it makes it harder to say, okay, that's clearly a civilian arm of ISIS doing civilian things, uh, whereas it would be very easy with us to be able to distinguish between the two. And that as a practical you, matter. How do you react to the slippery slope concern that oh, Ken yeah. raises, which is, well, then why isn't the 
poppy field in Afghanistan, a lawful military. <laughs> the last refuge of the academic, right. the slippery slope. Right. We all know that phrase. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and then and so the practitioner's last refuge. It's a case by case basis. You have to you have to go and analyze. I know we. we from a practical standpoint, the poppy fields in Afghanistan were, were virtually off limits. There weren't, I mean, most of the, not only under NATO ISAF rules, but in most of the nations said, unless we can show a nexus between a combatant activity, we're not just going to go target poppy fields because it's criminal. And most, most of the nations, to include us, were, were pretty clear that there was a good separation between criminal activity and, and, and combatant activity. But I, it, does, it does get a little murky when the Taliban's running that and using that to directly finance their operations. I'll give you that. Cool. Yeah. And uh, Ryan's written a lot on this, and I, and, uh, and I, I think he and I, yeah. he and, he and I would, would part company a little bit in terms of how broadly accepted this notion that you can target the financial proceeds. And we're, just, we're talking a very narrow thing in some ways. Yeah. Your, the financial proceeds that you get from selling oil or selling drugs or whatever now becomes targetable because you use it to run your war effort. And uh, I, I think there are, that that doesn't fall within the AP1, additional protocol, one uh, notion of targeting. Um, I think Ryan probably disagrees with me, but it's, it's the, it, it, that's where the debate is. I, I, I think then there's a more interesting question. If you don't agree with it, what's the, what's the consequences of doing it if you look through the mirror of reciprocity? And so if you're setting this standard, in some ways, intuitively, it's easier to say with the Islamic State, you, you know, it's a genocidal evil group that, that it's easy to sort of uh, think that you should broaden your ability to get them. But if you're setting a course of action that you're relying on broad principles of international law, then you should be prepared to counter them against yourself. And I think this is what's led to the to the issue of well, it was just a money depot, as we heard in the the money depot that the that the uh, Islamic State was using, as opposed to the banks, right? So we're starting to divide up the money. The problem is money is so fungible, you know. It's 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 the heartbeat of terrorism, but it's also the heartbeat of our societies, and especially in a cyber environment. My concern is when an enemy thinks that maybe we should attack the economic power of the United States and Wall Street because that's ultimately the money that's used. The other piece that doesn't happen. So, so, so that's your your slippery slope. It's my, it's my slippery slope, but it's also it's also about dialogue. So there's very much in terms of the reason we're doing this is to degrade the Islamic State's ability to fund their effort, which I think intuitively makes sense to everyone. What there isn't a discussion is, what's the collateral effects on the civilian population that's trying to live under a regime which no longer has the money to finance it, to have food, to run, to run those sorts of things? So that's, that's part of the challenge. Of, it's only part of the dialogue makes its way into, the, into the, uh, sort of the public dialogue in the papers. Well, that was actually one of the questions that I asked you to, to address based on uh, an article that you wrote recently, which is whether or not we are, as a general rule, we are adequately considering the effect on civilian population in the, in the military advantage equation, right? It, it seems to me that what you're suggesting is if you're considering attacking the money without considering the second and third order consequences of the civilian population, you might be missing an important component of military objective analysis. Have I misstated it? Kind of foreseeability. Yeah, I, I focus it more narrowly. I, I think there's a broader question of the nature of counterinsurgency okay. in terms of how it uh, of how it plays out. So I'll, I'll just another. 
Happen to have a slide. Happen to have a slide, yeah, <laughs> to get ready. I'm a, I'm a visual learner, so that's, uh, that's my challenge. You know, the, uh, there is this debate about what is military advantage versus the collateral civilian impact. And in the military, we talk you know, one of my, in my research, I've only ever been able to find in doctrine a definition of high-value targets. I've never been able to find a doctrine of low-value targets or medium-value targets. And, and if you're, so we're, we expect to fight in a high-value target-rich environment, I guess. But this, this, this causes the notion in my mind of what is a military advantage, and is it always just in terms of, as the ICRC would say, soldiers killed, uh, ground taken, objective, military objectives killed, or is there something um, far more important and nuanced to that? And so from my perspective from counterinsurgency, there has to be a military advantage to not isolating the civilian population. And military commanders do that all the time. They, they both design their operations and they make targeting decisions based on well, how many civilians they're going to kill. And where this arises in my, is this dialogue that's happened in the public realm of zero casualties. Any civilian casualty, it's almost a human rights standard, is problematic. But I think there's a strong argument that legally in a counterinsurgency environment, there's a narrower acceptance of proportionality at law. And this gets to the debate of, is the decision to scale back our, our, um, operations and targeting a requirement at law or a requirement of policy? And when you talk to most state legal advisors, they will say, well, that's a policy decision. But it's almost framed in terms of what we know the law, do we know what the law is in terms of this, this, uh, this scope. It, it seems to me that if you're trying to avoid civilian casualties, and that's to a military advantage, that that has to work to narrow the acceptable range at law of civilian casualties. So I, I go to the targeted killing case, which introduced this notion of a zone of proportionality that's, that's framed by weighing these two things. And within this zone, you find the point of what might be excessive or not. And so on, theoretically, on what construct is there a very broad zone where you will accept there's more casualties are allowed? Is it the shoot down of an aircraft uh, over North America? And on what, at law, does, is that a legal question of what's acceptable? It seems to me it is. If, if you can accept a large number of casualties, at law, under what circumstances will you only accept a narrow number of casualties and what are the factors that come to play? And at law, it's gotta be military advantage weighed against what the casualties are. So, so, Rich, what do you think? The, the theory that your military advantage is actually enhanced by reducing civilian casualties, which constricts, as a matter of law, the scope of permissible casualties in your proportionality equation, or, or you, you operated under the tactical directives? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of took that into account. I don't, you know, and I just don't, I'd have to give it a lot of thought to know if that's a, a principle in law versus just commanders making good decisions. And, and so certainly we saw that in a counterinsurgency, and I, and I had this discussion often with NGOs who were very excited in human rights organizations, very excited about the tactical directive, very excited about the fact that, you know, we were doing everything we could to reduce civilian casualties down to virtually nothing if we could uh, in, in a counterinsurgency. And I was quick to explain and, and maybe burst bubbles sometimes at saying, look, there's no guarantee we would ever enact a tactical directive in an environment where it was traditional nation-state on nation-state warfare, because then there is no hearts and minds consideration, the things that Ken's talking about, you know, that, that certainly you have your normal rules of proportionality, and, and any loss of civilian life is tragic, 
but it it doesn't it less contributes to your winning the conflict in a counterinsurgency he's right i mean it, the the fewer civilian casualties the more likely the civilian population is going to support the government and the and the nation supporting that that government and and the more likely you'll bring that counterinsurgency conflict to an end on the other hand if you're in traditional nation state on nation state warfare it, it doesn't factor in the same way now I, I mean i think it's a really fascinating um element of applying the proportionality concept because normally what we're doing is we're balancing yeah. military advantage yeah, yeah. but when you make reducing civilian casualties Part a military, military advantage, advantage. Yeah. it fundamentally alters the, the scope of what you you start out with an, with an assumption you should be trying to yeah, make. It's almost like you weigh it twice. Right. You, you, it factors in on military advantage and then it factors in right. again on the proportionality balancing and and you know I just don't know I don't know. I'd have to get, I mean, it's, an, it's a fascinating thought. And I think at some level, at a practical matter, it's done. Commanders are doing that. They don't have to be told it's the law. It's, they know in a counterinsurgency it matters. Uh, the more interesting thing is, does it matter in counterterrorism, for example, where obviously we have the very high standards that the previous panel talked about, does, but does it matter? Because some, some, some will tell you it absolutely does, that every time there's a, a drone strike and we kill civilians, that we've just made it worse in that area, that we've just created more terrorists, so we're actually going backwards. And, and other people will say it, it just doesn't matter. I mean, it matters in the sense that you've killed civilians. Don't, I'm not, don't mm -hmm. misstate. But, but it doesn't affect the conflict itself. That it do, in, the, in the scheme of things, every terrorist you take out it, it is a step towards winning that fight. Mike, did you uh, want to come? Yeah, I, just, I, I mean, I... I kind of agree with Rich. I, I don't know if it changes the proportionality and the, and the military objective analysis from a legal matter. I do think it gets into the strategic objective of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, in the, in the counterinsurgency aspect, I mean, you, again, um, I think that's where we, we've talked about earlier today and others, you start then mixing the policy aspect and the strategic objective of trying to end the conflict um, while still applying the, the legal matter. But I don't know if it narrows the proportionality analysis. I think that's being weighed in uh, with the goal of limiting civilian casualties. And I think this, this plays, Jeff, into uh, highlights, I think something you've written a fair bit about, which is what's the nature of the targeting rules that are found in Additional Protocol 1, Article 57? The, the, the whole, the international community focuses on the outcome. Is it, is it proportionality? Mm -hmm. And the problem with this is, you know, how do you define that? It's, it's, it's mixing apples and oranges, and you're trying to reach an outcome which is acceptable. It's a, you know, historically, it's a, it's a morality test, double effect, medieval doctrine, double effect, that's been, that's been put in a legal rule and has became, become an international crime. But the question is, how do you do the outer bounds? And as, as you've identified, and, and others are starting to write about, is that perhaps the most important part of the test in additional protocol one is the process part that comes that comes in terms of the weighing not the not the final outcome but the requirement to avoid or minimize civilian casualties which forces commanders to sit down and say what is the advantage that i want to have and how will i conduct my operations that the outcome will be i get to a happy place morally legally or whatever and so it's it's in many respects, it's that process that gets you to the place of comfort and gets you to the place to be able to explain where you end up, as I put up here, like the, like the Israeli uh, High Court has said, 
you still end up with a zone. And this, this is where it separates from many respects from parts of the human rights community that want no collateral damage, whereas even in a counterinsurgency, or casualties, even in a counterinsurgency, this process is going to leave you with that possibility because that's the reality of the beast. But, and, you, and, but you're in a happy place getting there in terms of de uh, meeting the moral and legal requirements. And it was one of the issues that I specifically asked Rich to address, so I'm going to ask you in a moment. But one thing I think that is, um, is very interesting is, is when I hear academic, con when I go to academic conferences and I hear discussions about transparency, right? Why don't we know? I mean, I, I'll never forget when I was sitting next to Rosa Brooks. I think you were in the audience. We were testifying on the AUMF, and I think Carl Levin said, how do we know who an enemy combatant is, who can be attacked by a drone? And Rosa said, I don't know, and I, I think we should know, and I really want to know. And, it's, and then he said, well, what do you think, Professor Korn? I said, I really want to know, too. I don't think I should, because <laughs> I don't have a top secret clearance, but I really would like to know, right? And so the, instinctively for me, I think maybe I have more confidence in the, in, in, the, in the conclusion that we're acting within that zone of reasonableness. And I think that's because I am aware of the process. Yeah. And the process is the manifestation of good faith commitment to the end state, right? And, and so I, I like your thoughts. I know you wanted to make a comment, but specifically, we fight enemies that are deliberately violating the law, mm -hmm. and yet we know that in our process, we're becoming that much more cautious. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and and the the one the the point I wanted to make back on your conversation with Ken just now because you've written on it and I think you were the first to write on it and uh, and then others like Lori Blank have written on it. We somewhat in the minds I think of the public and the person who doesn't study in this area, they've reduced proportionality to a post-strike. What was the actual <coughs> damage? And, and I think that's dangerous for us as a military. It's dangerous for us as a country, a countries, because it the test is what the commander knew and, and was his decision reasonable about the foreseeable casualties that might come from a particular strike. And we have to judge based on that. And, and judging based on the post-strike, you know, oh, there were, there were three kids in there. Well, if the commander didn't know there were three kids in there and, and, and it was proportional based on what he or she knew and, and they went through the right process and watched it, I mean, we go to tremendous lengths. Uh, to, to, to before we take strikes, particularly in places like Yemen, Somalia, Libya, uh, tremendous uh, means of watching. We watch targets for a long, long time. Do you think that, I'm curious, do you think that the kind of commitment to that process at every level of command over the last 15 to 17 years has grown a different culture of warfighter oh, than we grew up with? Absolutely. Absolutely, because it was, you know, it was a pretty, we, I think we pretty simplified, you know, simplified the process when we were coming up and learning it. And we were thinking in a World War II, you know, I mean, certainly we had Vietnam and Korea, but we were all kind of thinking of the force on force, here's what's going to happen, and, and, and doing the, do the math, and, and the commander makes the call. And it's become, the, the process now is so sophisticated. I once, I just fascinating, I, I had a, I was going back and forth with a really good friend who uh, was at a human rights organization that focuses on civilian casualties. And she, her concern was that, well, what, do you, what if you don't know who's in that building? And I said, okay, I, listen, I can't tell you how long, but how long would you watch a building? How long would you watch a building before you felt comfortable you knew there weren't any civilians in that building? 
And she, she said two days. And I said, we watch it longer than that. What do you think now? And she got, like, I mean, her eyes. Right. She thought, I, you know, she, she assumed we watched it for an hour or two hours. And I said, we watch it much longer than you think we do. And so, and that's the, that goes back to your question. Do you trust the process? And I right. think the, the more you've been inside and seen the process, the more you tend to trust it. Um, and I could be wrong, and I'm, uh, but, but I think if you've seen it and lived through it, you know how much deliberation there is, how much oversight there is, how many people are involved in those decisions, well, I, and so I, forth. And I do think that one of the, one of the effects that has, we've, not, we've not fully grasped is that this emphasis on process and precautions and, and maybe a conservative, more conservative view to the use of combat power is cultivating a different yeah. um, culture within the military itself. The commanders that are going to be taking over in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years have a different understanding. I think it's positive because what I think it does is it reinforces that balance between humanity and necessity yeah. that we know is at the core. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a broader question here, though, and, that, and that's these rules may seem new or new culture. I mean, if, where it's first time it's written down is the AP1. 1977, right? And no one pays attention to this language until after 9-11. But it's not just 9-11. There's also a technological piece to it. So in the intervening time, you've had the beginning of precision-guided missiles. You've got drones. You've got an ability to, to do this sort of thing. And it seems to me that that's that, that, that interlapping in terms oh. of what the discussion is, right? And so there, is a, there has been a tremendous change. And if there's any discussion of what the normative impact of treaty law can be, I think it's looking at that targeting discussion that's changed from when we joined the forces. I joined in the uh, 72. Um, there was no additional protocol right. to, to what there is now in terms of the dialogue is completely different. The expectations are different. And the challenge is going to be turning it back the other way when we're not fighting conflicts where you can watch a building for two hours. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, but we have those now because people are using these rules in self-defense. There's also a challenge we've seen, and I'm sure some of the, the uniformed people in the, in the building have confronted is, which is, as you say, Rich, an increasing expectation of perfection, yeah. right? Yeah, no, the more no. you talk about your process, the more you talk about your technology, the more you talk about your capability, the lower the tolerance seems to be for error. Yeah. Or maybe not even error, right? I mean, I teach criminal procedure, and one of the things I hammer into my students is reasonable doesn't always mean right. Yeah. You can make reasonable mistakes, and, and it and certainly occurs in war. One of the issues that's gaining more and more discussion internationally is an obligation to investigate, right? Which I think is very interesting. We've had our DOD law of war directives since after the conflict in Vietnam, and we've always been taught that when there's a credible report of a, of a violation, it has to be investigated. What I think has been under-theorized and is very important for the military is what triggers that obligation. How much information, what level of, of certainty is required? Mike, if you were up at OTJAG and the question is, when am I required to initiate an investigation of a potential violation? What's our, yeah, what, what do you, we say? Um, I think you go back to uh, when you have a reasonable basis to believe that there's been a law of armed conflict violation. Uh, I mean, so that's what we put out in 2311, the DOD directive. But you know I'm not going to let you, I'm, you know what I'm coming yeah. back at you with, yeah. right? What makes a basis reasonable? 
Well, then that's the the question. I mean, where do you get the information from? I mean, it's uh, I, I think Rich probably lived through this when he was in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, who's giving you the information, and you know, do you have an obligation to go back and and take every piece of information that someone gives you? Is that is that credible? Is, is there it, a chilling effect to over investigation? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think there would be. Yes, there is. Yeah, and I think, and I think it goes back to sort of. Ken's point and, and your point earlier is, is we seem to be getting to where uh, it's almost the zero defect. I mean, you have to be right all the time. Um, uh, it goes back to sort of the, the way people view these investigations is um, if somebody mistakenly dies, somebody has to pay. Um, and it, it gets away from, I, I think, in armed conflict that, you know, things happen. You know, uh, you never have a perfect picture. And, and it goes to Rich's point. You can't look after it's happened, you have to look at the information you have available to you at the time and, you know, did you act in a reasonable manner? You know, things happen in, in war, you know, and bad things happen. So uh, uh, it's never going to be perfect. There, so, is, there is a point, there is an interesting point, though, where there's a chilling effect until you get to a point where you investigate so much yeah. that it's routine. Uh, and, and, and that has its own consequences. We, you know, we, we, were, we were the point where just about any civilian casualty, even if on face value it looked completely lawful, no question about the ROE, nobody, we'd still investigate it, and and then and typically follow up with some kind of salation or something. That was just that that was just kind of the where the atmosphere had gone. That's the so. Culture. So going back to your comment about the concern over effects-based judgment yeah. of military operations, right? All of these things I think play into it. One that struck me as I was listening to the colonel's presentation this morning is we and I and I asked Ken to give it a little thought we we constantly use the term the obligation to minimize civilian casualties that that unsurprising it's in the text of of article 57 in in the stuff I've been writing I try and redefine it as mitigation effort right so the the obligation of the commander is to take all feasible measures to mitigate risk because I think mitigation, I think mitigation of risk is forward-looking. Minimization of casualties plays in, I think, plays into effects-based um, analysis. And I'm just curious what you, what you guys think about if, if that terminology that we're even using is subtly contributing to this effects-based critique of military actions. Yeah, I think it might, actually. And, that, and, and that's a good, I hadn't thought about that, but mitigate is certainly a, a little less... Uh, I think it's a better term than minimize because minimize assumes you're going to drop it down to zero right. at some point, and it plays into this effects based where it, any casualty is a failure. Somebody has messed up if there's a fail if there's a civilian casualty, and that's not what the law says, and that's not what our policy says. But there certainly seems to be this idea out there that any civilian casualty is now there's something wrong. Somebody messed up. Ken? Yeah, I would. I see. I, I have. I see mitigation as problematic in the sense that it doesn't set out close enough what what the desired end state is, and in the law, it is to avoid or minimize. Right. So you you take mitigating steps to get you to that <coughs> point. It's it's the end state which is important. I guess I would put the test this way: Does anyone see a scenario where applying the targeting rules, there is a potential military objective? which is not worth hitting because it might kill one civilian. Sure. The answer to me is sure, yeah. right? So, but that, you know, 
that isn't normally the discussion. Well, you would you would you would say I won't hit it today, or I'll hit the target somewhere else. So, so you do have to consider the avoiding or minimizing, regardless of how you're. Mitigating is just explaining what you're doing to get to the end state. To me. See, see I, I see it a little bit differently. In my mind, the value of emphasizing risk mitigation is there are objective measures you take to reduce the risk before you make that ultimate proportionality judgment. To me, you're made, you, you've gone through all the steps, you've got the military objective, and now it's what? It's a place where they store berets for, the, for the, you know, some guard unit, and you're going to kill a civilian child if you attack it. To me, that, that now you're down to the ultimate proportionality judgment. But if you've gone through all those steps beforehand to bring it down, I'm not saying that's the ultimate outcome. I also think the value of it, one, however you characterize it, is I think it's objective evidence of good faith. And I think one of the things we, we have failed to emphasize in our own, I don't want to use the word marketing, but our own demonstration of our commitment to humanitarian principles in the conduct of counterterrorism or counterinsurgency operations is that behind the scenes we're doing all these things in many ways to offset the risk that the enemy is exacerbating because of its own illicit tactics. So you have this irony. Earlier I, I asked the question, does the nature of your enemy potentially expand the scope of a lawful military objective? I think it cuts both ways. I think the nature of your enemy can actually push more obligation on you to mitigate civilian risk than you might otherwise had if you, if you had a law-compliant enemy, because every attack you conduct, your expectation is they want you to create civilian casualties, right? Yeah, I mean, in fact, we saw, you know, one of the things, and we were talking about this at lunch, you know, the, the, we publicly, pub, we published our standard that there was near certainty that no noncombatants would be present and we published that, and we spoke about it, and it's in speeches for our counterterrorism strikes outside of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. And by publishing that, I mean, my first thought was, okay, now that we've published that standard, if I'm a terrorist, what am I going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force a woman to sit in the front seat next to me, and I'm going to have kids in the back seat. Everywhere I go, I'm going to make sure, because we have this no women and children, you know, that's, which is not the legal standard, but that's, that's where folks leap. And so if I were a terrorist, I would drive around in a car with as many civilians as I could put in there. And because we've published a standard that says that's no longer a lawful target. Right. And there's a danger there that we've we've made it harder on ourselves, and so, you know, we we at some point we start to look for other ways to get at that individual. And I I just I think in some cases we ought to we'd be better off probably not publishing standards like that that are so high and so hard to meet. I'm stunned that we don't see more of the Al Qaeda and ISIS leaders driving around with folks in the car with them. So, so that, that leads me to one of the uh, wild cards I, I told you I might throw at you. We know from the report that the article that, that Dave sent us, you mentioned that the president is, has suggested that maybe the rules of engagement will simply be comply with the law of armed conflict, mainly for my American colleagues. Do you think the president is, is legally bound by customary international law? Because if we're talking about NIAC, and we're talking about all these, hercu these <coughs> efforts we make as precautionary measures, that's not a treaty obligation, to my knowledge. I mean, I don't see it in, article, in, in Protocol 2, even if you wanted to argue that we're bound to the object and purpose of the treaty because we signed it, and it's certainly not in common Article 3. We would all probably agree it's a, it's a customary international law extension of law mm -hmm. that was created for IAC. 
Is he bound by that? And if you don't want to answer, you can tell me. It. Yeah, you might. Yeah, uh, I would point too. out that Jeff gave us this question like 30 minutes before we started. So <laughs> uh, I think you would like to say yes, um, um, but I, I, you know, I think you go back and look at the supremacy clause, and I think people are all over the place about whether you know on customary international law is the president bound by that. I think that also the other discussion comes in kind of what I think Deborah and, and others were talking about is when you say customary international law you know it, do we believe it's customary international law I mean is it risen to the level of customary international law uh, well, it well, goes the, to the article I mean you can look at article 75 uh, the, the, we put out a couple years ago where we said we were going to you know apply this out of a sense of legal obligation which which indicates that we think at some point it will become customary international law but we weren't saying at the time that it has achieved that status. So I mean, uh, yeah. No, I, I look. I think that I think most of us thought that debate was put to rest yeah. a little bit, right? The the, the post nine eleven debate yeah. of whether you're bound by custom. I just wonder if some of that could get resurrected again, and 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 then where are we? Well, the hard. I mean, the hard part is you know, unlike a law that says you will drive twenty five miles an hour or less in this area, that's pretty black and white. We know what that says. With customary international law, you know, the president at some level says, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the law. I've, I've, I've checked with my advisors, and I disagree that that's customary right. international law. And so that, the real problem is I think he would say, oh, I'm absolutely bound by – well, I don't know what this president would say, but let's uh, – and I'm not making a political statement there. I'm just saying it, let's assume he said, absolutely, I'm bound by customary international law. I just don't think that's customary international right. law in that case. And that's really where the problem is going to be is, I, you know – Defining what that is. Okay. Yeah. Um, but Jeff, go I ahead. Think an example, I think, you know, I think before he was elected, I think he said something about, you know, we'll, we'll go after, you know, targeting families and other things right. like that. Yeah. I think you get, I think, I think we would all agree that, you know, again, targeting civilians is the customary international law principle and you can't do it. Uh, I, I would, you're bound by that. I think that's. I think it's more customary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't know how you could. You know, if he came up now and said something like that, well, we're going to now target uh, al-Qaeda leaders and all their families. I think that would, he's certainly not able to do that. Um, another question, somewhat related. We're talking about precautions, and one of the arguments that, that, I, that I hear, or statements I hear, and it's caused me a lot of pause, is the statement that we, we did more than we were required to. Right, so we we issued warnings, but we weren't required to, or we uh, attacked at a different time, but we weren't required to. I'm curious what your reaction is to the response. If the obligation is to take all feasible precautions, and you did it, doesn't that ipso facto indicate that what you did was feasible? feasible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are we? Is it? Is it really? Are we? Are what we is? I, and I hear this a lot from my Israeli friends. Or what we really trying to say is that every case of precautions is a case-by-case -case assessment. So just because we did it yesterday doesn't mean we're always obligated to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that part of it is is kind of reserving that right to to do that case-by-case -case analysis. And um, you know, I thought it was interesting in in the early days of the what what are, this current Iraq. Um, conflict that one of the U.S. generals in, in one of his briefings 
from from Iraq mentioned the the knock on the roof, right. which is the first time we've heard a U.S. person use that about a U.S. operation. So, you know, we we're learning from the Israelis. No matter what you think of that technique, it is it is a way of at least giving some sort of warning. And and I have a targeting um, presentation I do sometimes, and I show some of the the flyers we drop on populations, uh, and it shows a fuel truck and a you know, F-15 coming in on low strafe, which is funny. And then little guys running out of the truck. And, and it's got, you know, warning in, in a couple different languages telling them, hey, you need to abandon your trucks because we're going to target those. And that's an effort to, to not hurt somebody who, even if arguably you could, you could link that truck driver to close enough to ISIS, say he had a continuous combat function that you thought, or part of an organized armed group, or you think he's a combatant, we still take the precaution to get the driver out of the truck. Cause, uh, and, and so there's a lot of things we do, you know, but, but often commanders, particularly when surprise is a, is a big element, will not want to do that because it, 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 could, it could add risk to the mission, it could add risk to the force going in, and, and frankly add risk that the, the other side will start moving in the human shields. So, so I, I, to me, I think there are th that, that there are two kind of risks that we're dealing with. One is the external expectation that because you did it once, you, you always have it, to yeah. do it. And therefore, if you don't do it, you're violating the law, right. which could explain why you make that kind of qualifier. The other, though, the flip side of the risk is suggesting that it's always, you know, it's just we never have to do it. Yeah. We did, did it because we felt like it. Yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah, I, you I, I think it's the former. I, th I think you're, you're always looking for, for uh, operational flexibility, right? And the concern is that if you do something this time, without a full assessment of what all the factors are, Correct. you'd be forced to do it again. So a lot of the discussion now about drones is a, is a uniquely American discussion, where you're loitering over for more than two days, trying to get the, you know, the pattern of life, you know, PID, positive ID, all of that in terms of, in terms of taking a strike. When this law has to apply to everything from the individual private soldier <coughs> to a whole different state-on-state uh, -state strategic air campaign where effects-based targeting is at the heart of the, of the targeting decisions that are made. And, it, you know, it's these few articles, whether you, whether you, you know, most of them, most of it's been accepted as customary international law. And so I, it's managing expectations where people say, we, we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this in order to justify this, and the next time they'll say, well, why didn't you do it this time? Mm -hmm. But it, there's also plays out, just like the, the, the major, I forget your name, sorry, question asked about are we setting a standard by doing these announcements? And I see it with the, with the test for near certainty. That absolutely isn't a test under, uh, under uh, LOAC or a test under human rights law in terms of decisions to shoot. It's, re it's reasonable belief at which you can have a mistaken belief and be just as you, as you mentioned. But if you're, and, and you, as I understand your policy guidance, it was clear to say this only applies outside of active battlefields, whatever that is. Well, and it's, it, it's interesting too, you know, you, you earlier hearkened to the, the pronouncement that, or the announcement that they're gonna take all policy and shrink it, all ROE and shrink it back yeah, down to the limits of international law. And in some cases, you might want to do that. You might want to, near certainty, as Ken's pointed out, that, that might be a standard you want to bring back to the traditional law of armed conflict standard 
and and a reasonable certainty kind of standard that that uh, and and you might be comfortable with that. But then there are other areas of rules of engagement where we've we've added policy restrictions because they make sense and because we want to control soldiers' fires and because we have a a good policy reason. Of course, if you if you strip that down, then that chart becomes that much more important, right? Yeah, it could be because yeah. then then what becomes decisive is the proportionality assessment and then the factoring in whether or not. Uh, protecting civilians is actually an element of the yeah. military advantage, right? Yeah. True. What, what, one more, we had, we had agreed that we wanted to save plenty of time for questions, but just one more question for any of the group or all of you. The, the, the ongoing debate uh, uh, related to common Article One, right? The mentor, we, we heard this morning that, um, that one of the challenges going forward is that we're going to be dealing in some, many cases with proxy forces if we're going to defeat this enemy. At what point, if at any point, is the ICRC right or wrong on their notion that uh, the obligation to ensure respect for the conventions means you bear some responsibility for the forces you're uh, working with? Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll start and throw it to these two because they're smarter than I am on this stuff, I'm sure. But, I, you know, I would have looked more to the, the customary international law and really the draft articles of state responsibility for, for where I find my law on, on proxies. Because it, it does seem like there's a rise in, in, in folks using proxy forces, that, you know, the buy with and through our partners kind of thing. And, and Harold Coe made a speech about it and talked about, you know, if you give direction or you have control over the forces, then you're responsible for their actions. Well, that's, you know, that's a, you have to be careful. That's the standard. If, and let's, let's, for argument's sake, let's say that's the standard. Then you have to be really careful. You, there's a line at which you have to decide how far am I going to go with these proxies? You know, am I just going to train and equip them and then give them some broad kind of here's what we kind of like would like you to do and set them loose and hope they do well to avoid the, a, a charge that they are now we're responsible for their actions because we're not going to have any say over what they do once they go into places like Syria. You know, as we were training the, the insurgent forces to go in there, you know, we were going to lose a lot of control. So the question is, how much do you do? Do you deliberately avoid that? Or do you just go ahead and take ownership of it and direction and control? And then you have to, then it's a constant responsibility to make sure they're doing the right thing. And, and that adds a lot. Now we, we tried to do a good balance, I think, with you know giving them extensive training on law of armed conflict, on human rights, on detention. You know, even though we didn't know what they do to detain, they I mean they're out in the middle of nowhere with no facilities. But you know, giving them that training, but but not giving them the direction and the command and the right. control, so that they wouldn't be our forces. That's not always going to work. It's and sometimes you you need that direction and control over proxy forces and then you have to come up with a new a new strategy and, and new controls and measures and other things you're going to do. I, I, I think it depends the nature of the the group you're you're aligned with and what your role is so you know you could be in a, have a compound in Africa where it's a local security force that's uh, that's uh, licensed by the government to do this kind of stuff. I mean, it seems to me there's a much heavier local government connection where you're reporting what went on if you see something that's out of, out of kilter. So the difference to be you're engaging and training a local force to protect your compound in Afghanistan and you're responsible for them. And, and sort of in that range, you can have a whole wide 
sort of types of uh, types of forces. So you know, our our forces definitely had uh, we called them poplets, police uh, operational mentoring li um, liaison teams, and the uh, and omelets with the uh, with the uh, with the Afghan National Army. And you know, these were advisors basically that were were. But there was a heavy reporting requirement. They weren't in command. They weren't. Uh, but if they saw something wrong, they were definitely required to report it and make sure. If, you know, it was in their capacity to stop it um, and bring it to the attention of the Afghan commander or the Afghan police uh, uh, commander. Um, so, and I think a number of nations uh, dealt with the question of abuse of Afghan boys, where you weren't aligned with the force at all, but this was happening in the compound next to you. And what was your requirement to deal with that? So it, it's, I think it's wide-ranging. What you can't do is close your eyes to it. Sure. That's the... But I mean, but... Mike? Yeah, I just want to sort of raise another example and then um, uh, a plug for one of my former colleagues at the State Department, Brian Finucane, who wrote a, a really good article, I think, on, on sort of the state responsibility and what your obligations are. And, and I think we, we were really looking more at, um, you know, the training and, sit and equip stuff that we were doing with Saudi Arabia and, and their fight in Yemen and, mm -hmm. and, and their ability or lack thereof uh, to hit targets that they should be hitting and, you know, hitting hospitals and hitting other stuff. And, and, and Brian's article points out, you know, when is it incompetence and when is it they just don't care? Don't care. Um, you know, and, and you've got to walk, I think, that fine line when you're, when you're working with them to make sure that, you know, you, um, you know at some point you are going to be responsible for that. Um, uh, so you got to, or, or not. But, right. You know, so you've got to figure out how to, how to balance that so you don't become part of the conflict and you don't become legally responsible for what, you know, your, your allies are doing. So but I, it, I don't it, go as it, far it, as what the ICRC is. Yeah, did. I mean, I it, seems, it seems almost unrealistic to me that there's an expectation that if you, apply, if you provide resources to yeah. an ally or a proxy, then somehow you become, you bear a responsibility to, to make an effort to make sure they're using them well, I mean, you have that obligation if you look at the Arms Trade Treaty. I mean, um, uh, which you know, one of the articles talks about. If if you know you are prohibited from uh, transferring or selling weapons to someone that you know are going to use those to commit law war violations, and again, it's direct knowledge, yeah. and, and you know, which is a very high bar. Different but, I mean, that's standard. you know what we, yeah. you know, I helped write that. So I mean, that's we specifically kept it at direct knowledge, but well, you yeah, run the risk yeah. of. Well, let's do some Q and A. Well, he, one thing I did want yeah, to I'm Harold, sorry, let's Harold not. Coe was careful to say <laughs> general support of a proxy does not raise right. the obligation. So he was he, direct control and or direction and control, yes, um, general support, no. Well, I, look, I, I've always thought there's also an equity issue, right? If yeah. you don't have the disciplinary authority over the group, then, and then imputing liability to you for something you can't prevent seems awful, awfully inequitable yeah. to me. And in most of those cases, we'll never have that authority. No, and nor will the, 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 the local or regional military officer who is working with them. I mean, he doesn't have the authority to say, if you don't stop this, the United States is going to cut off all aid to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so exactly. reporting it, yes. But there, I think it, there has to be a rational limit on what could be expected. That right? makes sense. Questions? Jeff, you got one of I see nobody else has a question to ask. <laughs> uh, General Gross, 
you have spoken particularly about the, the caution with, with which targeting is done now. Um, but I didn't hear in the considerations um, a calculation as to the, the impact on the motivation of others in, in, in increasing the intensity of, of the activity of, against the United States or in, the, in just the creation of martyrdom, which also is a beneficial aspect for, from their point of view. Um, and if those are, would be considerations, would you ever think of considering uh, uh, trying to immobilize and arrest uh, targets in order to either bring them uh, to trial in country or to maybe even deliver them to the International Criminal Court for war crimes? No, it's a great, great questions, great points. So first of all, I think, I think commanders do consider, depending on the type of conflict, and the situation, you know, they take those matters into consideration. So the, the tactical directive I spoke of in Afghanistan, we very much knew that, uh, and General McChrystal used to call it insurgent math. You kill two people, you've actually, you may have created 10 more insurgents. I mean, it, the, it's not a one-for-one. One. And so you have to consider your actions and, and what it's going to do. And, and, and I've, you know, I've heard, you know, the martyrdom thing, I think certainly they considered that with the bin Laden raid, from my understanding, and I wasn't involved in the, in the planning of that, so I can't say for certain. But, you know, from some of the news articles you read, they certainly considered, is he going to be a martyr? Is that going to make things worse, et cetera? So, so I think folks do consider those kind of things. And then your question was, and uh, remind me of the second half of your question, I'm sorry. Oh, 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 absolutely. Yeah, the capture versus kill question. So certainly that's, a, that's an important question. Uh, you know from the PPG, for example, that we've spoken on, one of the standards in there is you have to find that capture is not feasible. That's a policy standard that is in the PPG for those types of operations. And so commanders uh, proposing targets under the PPG in Somalia or Yemen or Libya or anywhere else would have to go through that and show that capture was or was not feasible. Um, and then often you do try to find ways to, to roll folks up and detain them. There, there are a lot of good operational reasons, frankly, for detaining someone um, to include, you know, the intelligence gain, the ability to, for criminal trials and so forth. So it, it's a consideration. It's, it's, it's certainly taken into account, I think, when it can, when it is feasible, when it can be done. Ken? Yeah, I, you know, it's back to uh, writ large over the uh, over the nine years that I was involved with uh, with the post 9/11 conflict was I saw um, a, a change in in broad strokes from killer capture missions to capture or kill missions to arrest or kill missions, and I think that was just a indication of of states starting to sort of connect. Their, their, the conflict with governance and with, the, with how you fight a counterinsurgency. So it's, it's not something that necessarily is required by law, um, but ar arguably one of the, uh, it could be in terms of doing your proportionality assessment, you come to the stage you can't do a strike, you may have to consider even a, even a status target who you could kill, your only option is to set up type of, some type of operation perhaps to try to capture them. Um, it's it's in any event that's that's potentially what could happen. The uh, 
so I, I think writ large, this gets down to the question of, again, where do you divide this law and policy uh, issue? And, and I think too often lawyers are always are saying to commanders, well, at law you can do more, you can do more, you can do more. And I think sometimes lawyers have to sit back and say, well, where are the bounds of what I'm saying you can actually do in this operating scenario? Why do I say the law can do more than the commander thinks he has to or needs to? Um, what are the bounds of the use of force? Well, is the PPG itself a manifestation of uh, discomfort with the, with, with the box you've opened up? I mean, specifically, the whole debate over the geography of war and transnational armed conflict, and now you, you lay out your framework, you've, you've got your asserted basis for conducting operations in the territory of another state, you've got the unable or unwilling test, you've got the, the global strategic targeting reach, you've got it all there, and then you walk back from it in, in a policy memo. It strikes me that that when we, when even in the in the discourse of our legal authority for conducting operations outside a, what you know, a, an active theater of operations, w there's still an element of, of of legal and policy schizophrenia that's hard to avoid. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Right. Yeah, and one other thing, I was hoping people would help me with this slide. <clears throat> This, and, the, and the PPG is included in the uh, December 2016 in terms of by reference, so it's not like it's necessarily out of date. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of consensus on an American position being that uh, un unwilling and unable, but when I read the legal discussions that have got you there, um, I don't see this consensus necessarily in the legal community or, or in, certainly not in the broader international community. So we've talked about consent. There are a number of international lawyers that believe you can't do this at all because you can't use self-defense against states because they're just criminal gangs, because it violates state sovereignty, a whole bunch of reasons. And the unwilling and unable test when it was first sort of floated as part of the drone strikes was attached to the notion of these people are involved in an ongoing armed conflict, right. they're in the AUMF, and we're going to take the analogy of neutrality law um, to say that if the... It, so it wasn't even a self-defense-based notion of unwilling or unable. It was a neutrality-based notion of unwilling or unable that uh, we can strike them because the state won't, right? And there's a long, there's a long history of unwilling or unable. I mean, you can, you can go back to D.W. Ballot in 1958 where he refers to it in defense of nationals, right? So this is a different notion of unwilling and unable and then you had, and I go back to my first comment about some question about what law applied, you had, you had Ken Anderson's naked self-defense, which is a theory he developed because he was concerned that the administration of the time wasn't going to apply international law. And it was, as I read it, fundamentally a policy application of LOAC. And then you have Jordan... In the execution. In the execution, right? But this raises a bigger question, too, of what law applies to when you take an act of self-defense. In your highlighted. In my highlighted, the third one. So you've got, you've got Jordan Post had a robust self-defense, and he said the international community sets the bar too high for armed conflict, so we're going to apply a law under Article 51 that's basically incorporating IHL principles into it, right? So we're, we're gap-filling. And on top of that... You have in the U.S., as you, as you folks in the uniform know, a policy that says we apply the law of armed conflict to all international operations, right, whether they're in armed conflict or not. And the question is, that law, how do you do that? And so, it, so, so, you, so, but one more just to go on. 
And then you've got the question of in-country self-defense. So you put states in country, and certainly in Yemen and in Somalia, there have been arguments that it's almost like an advance to contact, and then it looks like the group's threatening you, so you, you justify your argument on, on self-defense. That's how it's played in the papers. I'm certain that's not how it happens on the ground. So my question is in this, if we go back to the first one looks like an armed conflict where it's a belligerent party. The second one looks like the individual who takes a direct part in hostilities. Those are armed conflict words. When, when a strike takes place outside an area of active hostilities that's not in <coughs> relation to an armed conflict, so it's not a person taking a direct part in hostilities or a person who's a party to an armed conflict, what is the law that governs the strike in terms of its execution? And does that law allow for collateral damage? And what are the standards you apply to that strike? And I, this is part I struggle because it looks to me like this standalone notion of self-defense has been institutionalized. No, I, 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 I agree with you. And, I, and the, I'd add another question. Does the proportionality principle applicable to that attack protect the deliberate object of attack? Right. Is it a... Is it a law enforcement slash human rights notion of proportionality, or is it an IHL proportion, LOAC, where once we identify you as the threat, you're not protected by proportionality? And, to put and then the, P, the, the, the PPG seems to com complicate that even more because it suggests the former and not the latter. And to put this in context, as I understand the debate in the United Kingdom, it's not only a question of imminence, but it's a question of the UK took strikes against two UK nationals in Syria, and that was viewed as being a hot battlefield type strike. But the debate that's been going on in the UK Parliament and elsewhere has been, if the UK is involved in providing intelligence to the US forces that are carrying out drone strikes elsewhere, if they're a party to the strike, what's the legal basis for that if they take the view that that's not an armed conflict in Yemen, Correct. right? And, and uh, can you, and this is what their argument is, does, does human rights law apply to that strike? So that you would be bound by a law enforcement type notion. And so if, law, if human rights law applies, can you use a drone strike in any event under what circumstances? So the, inter the, you know, the debates sort of that come out of the PPG, I think are, there's, a, there's a long way to go down the road yet before there's international consensus that uh, you, you, the US may be an outlier here. Yes, but if it but but the question and, and we've we've spoken about this. The question we both have when we read that is that might explain your legal authority for authorizing the operation. What rules regulate the execution of the operation? Is it are is it LOAC rules or is it human rights rules or norms, non-conflict norms because you're not in the context of an armed conflict or once you make that decision to use military force to address that threat, have you ipso facto created an armed conflict? We, you and I have had this discussion. I think you have to read it with the argument that the United States Can you do anything with the microphone, sir, so we can get you in the recording? <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. We have had this discussion, Jeff, and I think you have to read that last phrase. In other words, it's an act of national self-defense if the individual is deemed to be an imminent threat based on that very expanded definition of anticipatory self-defense. 
But I think you also have to assess it in the context of the argument that the United States makes that it's engaged in an ongoing global yet non-international armed conflict. Okay? So you have to read the two in conjunction with each other. There's your armed conflict, and that's where your law of armed conflict principles have to apply because you're engaged in this global NIAC. So I, I read it a little differently. The way I read it is that the first two prongs address what you're talking about. If it's an individual who's associated with one of the groups that we've determined we are engaged in an armed conflict with, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, affiliated forces, that seems to open the door for the possibility that it's an unaffiliated imminent threat, maybe a member of Hezbollah or Hamas that we've decided is plotting some action against the United States. They're, that individual is not within the scope of the AUMF, and yet they represent an imminent threat, and so they fall within the targeting authority as an action of what Ken Anderson would call naked or self-defense targeting. But I think that that then raises the question in the execution of that operation. And, and we can say, well, well, we'll apply LOAC principles as a matter of policy. But as a matter of law, what is it? And what if you end up capturing that guy? What's his status after you capture him? Yeah, I just think it's a matter of interpretation. I can see where you're coming from, but I, I would link that last phrase with, with the NIAC and therefore the applicability of LOAC principles. And, and, the, and, and when I heard Harold Coe give that speech at the Naval War College where he used that language, the word that jumped out at me, sir, was the word or. If, if, the, if the highlighted provision began with and, I'd be right with you. But why does it say or? It's distinguishing it from the first two categories, is it not? Yeah, it does. My question is, if it's on the context of an armed conflict, why do you need the third one at all? Yeah. And, and, and so to me, this is the, one of the challenges, and it, it gets to the heart of the notion of what uh, we would call pop-up armed conflicts. In other words, it's the beginning of the armed conflict. So it's, it's outside the Tadich criteria, where it's prolonged, um, violent, organized armed group. In other words, we're September 10th, 2001, early morning, 2011, or, two, or September 11th. At what point did the armed conflict with Al-Qaeda begin? And did it only begin, as some international lawyers would say, when the troops went into Afghanistan? Or did it begin when the armed attack started on the United States? Or, or would it have begun if right. we had identified that armed attack coming and taken action to stop it? Right. And, of and, course, and I, I just think it's a manifestation of, it's almost like the, the, second, the, the unintended consequences of an expanded notion of armed conflict is that then you're struggling to kind of put you, you, you've almost gotten more than you, than you bargained for, and you're looking for ways to put limits on it, and, which is interesting to me because if you get a different administration that doesn't want to put the limits on it, then the question becomes what are the actual international law limits? I guess my final comment, Jeff, would be that I think you're reading too much into war. Okay. Any other questions? Thanks. Oh, great. So um, picking up on the very last point you made with reference to the capture question, right? So what's actually binding the administration um, going forward? And more specifically, 
what, if any, international law requirements are there for process for detainees that we pick up in the context of our global or transnational non-international armed conflict? What, what, if anything, does international law require that we give a captive we pick up in Yemen, Somalia, Syria, you know, take, take your pick outside of the places that we call, I guess I exclude, no, actually any of those places, right? What if any international law constraints, do we have to give that guy an Article 5 well, hearing, something like yeah. an Article 5 or not? Well, I mean, I, I think that that's kind of why I asked, I, I, I threw that question out about customary international law, because what we know if we get, if, well, I think one of the lessons that we all recognized after 9-11 is just because we've always done it that way and it's working is not a strong enough argument if you, if you have somebody who's looking for a legal basis to deviate from that. So the question then becomes, if, if we pick this guy up and bring him to Guantanamo, what is the legal requirement? Hamdi doesn't provide it because Hamdi was an American citizen. E okay, right. And even if we even if we look what we did in Afghanistan, if we look what we did with the CSRTs, those were all anticipatory, right? DOD said, we know what the Supreme Court has said about an American citizen, so let's get ahead of the game and do this because we think it's a smart idea. But I don't think you're going to have a hard time finding a, a legal obligation to do much more than treat that person humanely. That, I think, would be binding on the president because we have an opinion that interprets a treaty that we're bound to. But beyond that, all that process is policy. And, and if the argument is made, well, there's emerging customary international law that says we have to provide a certain amount of fair process to, some, to somebody we detain, we've got the Al-Bahani decision sitting there like a, a loaded gun that says what? that if you're operating under the AUMF, the AUMF gives you the authority to assert customary international law as a basis for action, but in no way constrains you. And, and then what? I, th I think the answer to that question, Deborah, is not much other than no torture, no cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment, maybe access to the ICRC, and that's it. Um, what law governs the treatment of detainees? Process. Any Process? Well, I'm an additional Protocol 1 country that would view Article 75 as customary international law, which, which incorporates um, all the human rights you would need in order to properly treat them. Right, as you do as well. And, and, you know, that's truly been one of the advances that's come out of all this. First, first started with Secretary of State Clinton's discussion, but there's been a lot of DOD manuals that have recognized that, including an acknowledgement by Harold Coe that it's probably reached customary international law status. I, I would so just... So that's, that's, I, I'm, that's, that's where I would come at it, you know, separate from the why in your right mind would you not do it is a separate issue altogether. I, I would just... For a bunch of levels. 
Oh, and I and I know it's just a circuit court opinion, but an en banc opinion yeah. from the D.C. Circuit in the absence of anything else from the Supreme Court has some weight. And if you haven't read the Al-Bahani decision, I'd encourage you to do it because it is almost shocking in its, in its assertion of executive power to ignore customary international law based on the authorization for the use of military force. Bob? Uh, hesitate to raise this, but Rich mentioned the uh, Laden raid. And there was a book called No Easy Day that came out by a SEAL uh, who claims that he followed the lead SEAL into the room. The lead SEAL shot Bin Laden in the head. When the author entered the room, Bin Laden is on the floor quivering in death throes, and he put a round in him. And my question is, was that not a war crime? I mean, I worked on a, I helped a defense lawyer on a case uh, out of Iraq where a captain uh, did what I guess we would call a mercy killing. And he was convicted by a court martial. Um, I think without having all the facts and circumstances to know the time sensitivity of the decision, who else was in the room, what else was going on, uh, I think that the recollection of one individual who's writing a book um, talking about his own experience wouldn't necessarily convince me that that decision was of the same uh, category. In that case that I worked on, there was a video feed from a drone. The, the victim was, was convulsing on the ground. The captain went like that to the medic. He fired once, he was too close because of the high-powered sight. He had to take four or five steps back. I mean, there's clear calculation there. I don't know in that, I, I would say in that time-sensitive situation, it'd be hard to say that, that, was, that there was that same level of calculation you would need to allege. A, and I wouldn't ask, is it a war crime? I'd ask, is it murder? It's either murder or it's nothing. I, I need more facts, obviously, in that. I mean, I've read the book and read the accounts. I, and when I look at this stuff, I, uh, I think it was a really interesting case that happened from the uh, quite tragic killing in, uh, in London, subway, the subway case, the Mendes, Charles Mendes case. It's the De Silva is the name of the case, though, in the European court, which was dealing with the question of, of uh, if you have suicide bombers now or your concern is you have suicide bombers and, you know, the, the, I think the British term would be a button job where... All it takes is uh, either a finger off a button or on a button to uh, make the bomb go off. Uh, you're, you're driven to, to ensuring that there isn't that threat. And so I need a lot more. Uh, that, that case, in fact, found that it was, a, uh, it was an honest but mistaken belief uh, on, the part of the, uh, on the part of the person that fired. Um, it's quite an interesting read, because, uh, particularly from a human rights perspective. So um, I guess that's where I am on this, is, is the nature, and, and it's, you know, it's quite well known in Afghanistan, Iraq, and others that uh, these folks wore uh, suicide vests under, you know, under their clothes, ready to stop uh, special forces uh, from coming into the building. Um, and so there's, it's, it's the operating environment. So that, that's what strike me, you need a lot more facts before you got there. Please join me in thanking these uh, three great panelists.